She thinks life's a dog. She thinks life's a dog on fire. Boom, 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 boom. Early Burly by Man Man. That's a good song. I always thought that would be good uh, at bat music. I said that I wanted my uh, my hipster ass baseball closing pitching music to be two plus two equals five by Radiohead. I think even more obnoxious would be doing a Man Man song as my bat at bat music. Uh, for an officer, for a free officers movement in America, my kingdom for a Jerry Rawlings. Oh man, We've talked before about how, like you know, in a context of of unveil of uh, of of compounding crises, you know, like if we assume that uh, there isn't really a respite after COVID, if if the, if the next step after COVID is an intensification rather than a remitting. Uh, a relapsing and remitting immiseration, uh, 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 which I think is unlikely but possible, then you got to throw politics out the window entirely. The only hope we have for, to, to, to like stop the skid off of the edge of the mountain and into the abyss of just total atomized uh, uh, techno overlordship is going to be the U.S. military. I mean, no joke. Not, of course, the monsters at the top of it, not those Joint Chiefs of Staff who are mostly monstrous because of their banality. I mean, these are all just Eichmanns. They are all Eichmanns. Not in the sense that they did as great evil as Eichmann did, even though, of course, they're perpetuating militarily the great blood fountain of American empire, which has a massive fucking body count itself. They are Eichmann in their way that they approach their uh, butchers' lives is with a uh, total blank banality. It is time service. It isn't even, like you could say about a figure like Hitler, it isn't even some expression of a mad will to power that is at least connected to a human spiritual yearning, even if it's corrupted and monstrous. They are merely punching a clock in the service of, of, a, of misery. I mean, the only reason they're able to do it is because they've been abstracted from the process. Like Eichmann was in his little room with his little typewriter. Same way these guys are in their little cent centcoms, looking through their fucking uh, night vision goggle shots of uh, exploding weddings. Uh, you think, the, uh, how many military Jamails we got in there? Oh, that's a good, uh, that's, uh, 30 to 45. Well, there we go. Good job, guys. We have now reduced that number of terrorists, because as we all know, the number of terrorists is fixed. And therefore, the job of fighting terrorism is just killing them until they're all gone. That's how it works, right? That's what they tell themselves as they punch the clock. They're never going to stop anything from happening. They'll become Amazon generals. They'll, they'll just get inducted into the Bezos, like, Peter Thiel division, and they won't even think about it. Traditionally, where there has been uh, not, not socialist, not Marxist, but at least progressive and, like, broadly... I don't know, humanitarian, populist sentiment within the military, it has come from its middle ranks. Uh, it is the, all, of, all of the non, non, like, of all the military regimes, of all the coup-imposed regimes uh, of the 20th century, uh, all the ones that were not strictly reactionary, like strictly existed to serve the interest of uh, the most retransigent, uh, uh, um, faction of like the the national bourgeois, you know, like your Pinochets, uh, the ones whose whose regimes did not just become like authoritarian uh, imposition of neoliberalism. Uh, they all uh, occurred because middle level officers, like lieutenants, often captains, sometimes colonels, very very rarely generals, get together. And because a lot of them come from working class backgrounds, you know, they're not, the military is broadly uh, egalitarian in its, uh, in its, in fact, it's disproportionately weighted now in our military specifically and generally in the history, 
it's disproportionately weighted towards poorer people in terms of the number of people who make it up because of the need to, because uh, you need numbers, you need cannon fodder, and those aren't going to come from people with money. If you're in the, if you have money, if you have position, if you have status, and you're going into the military, it's in exchange for a shiny, shiny sword and a beautiful red uniform and a guarantee that you'll never have to do a fucking push-up in your life. That you'll get to ride around on a fancy horse and sip, sit and sip tea and order other people to their deaths. Or maybe charge along them grandly, but from the front, so that your death is part of a grand narrative that their deaths can never be. One way or another, uh, you want rank. And therefore, you're a reactionary. And so the top levels of the military will always end up selecting for that. In the middle rank, you have some upstarts. You have some people who came from the bottom. Started from the bottom, now they're here. Or maybe from the restive and always, and always uh, liminal middle class. And then you encounter army, milita uh, military organization, military esprit de corps, military education, which is going to be broadly liberal in a way that's going to conflict with the, uh, you know, if you have a nationalist conception, which you have to, if that nationalism goes beyond these narrow ruling clique, which is more likely to happen if you come from the bottom part of it, all of a sudden, that national concept is not strictly reactionary. And so, where has this happened? Free officers movement in uh, Egypt, Nasser, of course. Uh, I mean, no matter where they ended up and how degraded they end up, the bath revolutions in Iraq and uh, uh, Syria, um, and also Gaddafi, which, by the way, Gaddafi, I don't think, is a great man. I think that, you know, he, he belongs among the pantheon of pious who are able to stand up to America, and you kind of have to give all those guys credit, and you have to respect them just because of how difficult that was. Uh, but, uh, at the, and, you know, he wasn't, he did not uh, fully sign up. He was always playing a double game and he, until it stopped working for him, and he did it forever. And another thing I respect about the motherfucker he, uh, he never promoted himself to general. The guy was a colonel when they took power, when the green movement that he was ahead of took power. And then he was in charge for 40 years, and he never promoted himself to general. He was always a uh, colonel. And I respect that. Humble. Um, who else? Uh, the fucking... I mean, the most, like... The most, like, explicitly left-wing movement actually had the support of a number of actual communists. And I'm referring here to the Carnation Revolution in 1974 in Portugal, when when young officers, some of whom were, you know, just liberals, some of whom were disenchanted conservatives, everybody was sick of the Estado Novo, the decrepit uh, Salazar uh, sort of uh, uh, corporatist government, like proto-fascist, I guess, uh, government that had ruled since the 20s, uh, before Franco uh, came up the ghost, uh, and there was an attempt to maintain the Estado Novo and to, in fact, and to maintain, more importantly, the colonial brush fire wars that Portugal was fighting to maintain their territory in Angola and Mozambique, where Portuguese boys were going to fight and die, including the friends of these officers. And they came together at, with their educations and their experiences and said, holy shit, you know, we have a chance here. And they carried off something that could have tipped into like a military-led communist uh, uh, overthrow there. It didn't because the, the weight of, like, the, the, the center of gravity was not with the communists in Portugal. It was, it was with the left more broadly, which means that it would eventually settle more towards liberalism, which in the context of the heart of Cold War Europe, it's hard to argue would have really had any other way of going. And, you know, the early communist leaders of the Carnation Revolution ended up kind of regretting what happened because it did, you know, it ended with Port. But, you know, now, here in this crisis moment, when everyone's turning to shit and everything is turning, we're just getting either, like, the iron boot of Biden, Bidenist, Macronist, Merkelian thought, like the global, just, uh, the, the jackboot of, of, of naked... Uh, neoliberalism, or just the incoherent, uh, uh, reactionary, dog-brained populism, the spectacleized uh, um, fantasy politics of Bolsonaro and Trump and fucking Orban and all these motherfuckers, all these main case, all these martinets. Where is the place where those aren't the dominant tendencies? Portugal is one. And you can say that Portugal's left-wing government has made compromises and is undermining, you know, some broad uh, left movement internationally such that it exists, but I would argue that in the context of where you could be in uh, 
in the current moment where your government could be in response to dealing with this COVID crisis and the way it's reshaping the economy uh, and way of life? I would rather be in Portugal. And they had one of those uh, uh, colonels movements. Chavez began his rise to power with an attempted coup. Before he well, they took that the uh, like the position that having struck that blow and created that cri de for for freedom, people gravitated towards. Problem is, is the United States military. Our, our thing is almost designed to squeeze out anyone with any capacity, if not, you know, for, for left-wing sentiment, because I'm sure there's plenty of broad liberals in the, in the young officer corps, some of whom could, could, if conditions deteriorate and they're forced to make, you know, more stark choices about choosing between profit and human life, they might choose human life. They might choose socialism or barbarism as the choice becomes more clear. But even if they wanted to, they have no initiative or ability. Their, their, their job is to push the buttons in this giant wheezing machinery of, of war where winning is not the point of it. This is one of the first military. This is a very rare thing in a military where it is designed to not do the thing that it's supposed to be functioning for. Like when you go into the military, it is, you're taught that the role of the military is to win wars. But the actual role of the U.S. military is to fight wars. And those are two different things. And having to live that lie, it's unsustainable. And, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know how many people who find themselves, like, tending towards humanity and towards socialism and away from capitalism and barbarism, the, they might just get turfed out before they have a chance to get even to the fucking junior officer's level. But I have said... That is speculation. I have very little familiarity with the military. I'm a soft, fancy college boy. I didn't go to college. I didn't go. Where I'm from, it really does come down to a lot of cases. You go to military or you go to college. That's, that's the, the choice in like, uh, yeah. Manitowoc, which is like a, a, a fly spec mini rust belt town that had been a, um, a maritime hub. Uh, it's actually where half of the submarine fleet was built during World War II. The other half was built in Pennsylvania. And there's a sub, USS Cobia, you can go and visit in Manitowoc. And they had a big, uh, uh, they created, they, I think they still make the the, uh, the Manitowoc uh, cranes, I think. Uh, but there was a, like a pot and pan factory and it was all going away as I was coming up there. As I was com like coming into awareness, because I really was born with the neoliberal era there in the early 80s. And so, I was uh, seeing it all fall apart before my eyes. And so by the time I get out of I got out of high school, like if you go to the military, unless you want to stick around and like huff blue, or you can work, or you work at a farm with your family and you want to do that, you know. And there were farm people around there. It's all started by farmland. Uh, or you uh, you had to go to college or the military. Those are your options. And because of what my experience of life had led me to, weird quirks of biology and experience I mean the fucking uh, back injury being one of them that would have disqualified me even if nothing else had although honestly I don't think I could have joined the military if I wanted to I'm deaf in one ear I don't think I think I wouldn't have even like I wouldn't have been drafted in World War one World War two I would have been 4f with that because like I hear that people got denied uh, service in World War two which was not something people really dodged like you really wanted to fight because it was so socially expected uh, but People like not getting it because of fucking flat feet, and I'm like, God damn! I literally can't hear out of half of my head. I bet they would not have let me in, even then. But anyway, so but then like even if I'd been able-bodied and 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 whatever, my temperament, my experience, my interests, my social self sense of self was not really compatible with the military. It did not appeal to me. So hey, college, get some scholarships, take out some money. See what happens there. And I made that choice. But there are those who go through the officer corps, which is essentially the college of the military branch. That's the college of uh, the military like vector there. And then you come out of that and you've got a bunch of ideas. You know, you've assimilated some, you've, you've rejected others, you have some sort of sense of self politically, even if you think you don't, because a lot of those guys love to think that they're apolitical, but of course that's also a political position. 
one way or another, they are thoroughly political. They are politicized, which means they're encountering this moment of crisis and deprivation in the same way we are. How will people respond as things get worse? And that's why I say, if the, if the slide is intense, I don't think there's enough time for us to build up the infrastructure to resist it at a class level, as a working class movement, to withdraw work in a strategic way in order to reduce the system's ability to function so that some sort of confrontation has to come to be had with capitalism. Uh, like I'd say, this is all presupposing one trajectory. Uh, in that case, I think we got to just, we got to be hopeful that that uh, cast exists somewhere. Uh, but like I said, that is the less likely outcome. But, you know, that's got to be something that people think about and, you know, keep stirring in the pot there when they think about things long term, is the military. Because it is like the biggest, only trusted, nonpartisan institution in this country. Like we've talked about how uh, we're in the, among the politicized of us, we're creating a new dichotomy between people, I mean, two groups of people who live in alternative realities. Not just to the point where they think different things, uh, but that they essentially uh, pay homage to the authority of only things of their choosing. And in that case, you really don't have any institution that can be ever, ever hope to tame really out of control social uh, violence or even uh, just uh, rapid decline of, you know, coherence of an economy and, and, a, and a, a civil order. Oh yeah, as I, I'm speculating on a hypothesis. But certainly does t complicate the way a lot of people like the, on the left People who style themselves leftists like to think about the military. Like, yes, it is. Uh, it is an agent of doom. It is our worldwide. Uh, it's it's what rends the sinews of the earth for us. But the people within it have to be understood to be in roughly the same relationship, personally and culpability-wise, to the real exercise of, of this machinery as plenty of people who you would call comrade within the United States. And so that's uh, why, you know, it just it, things always need to be more nuanced, but we always just drive towards oppositions. And Bernie did have the most military donors. And also, as Frederick Jameson has pointed out, the U.S. military is one of the few places where you actually live in some semblance of a social democracy in this country. You know, obviously it's threadbare and getting worse over time because cuts everywhere, austerity everywhere. But you go, you go in, unlike any other place in American life, if you decide to go to college or you decide to what, learn a trade or, or try to, you know, hustle or whatever the hell you're trying to do uh, in, in, the, in the wage economy, if you join the military, you are guaranteed certain things like housing, like health care in exchange for a civic engagement, your duty. That's actually how those are. That's that's the social order that would like hypothetically create a uh, and sustain a social democracy or challenge capitalism coherently. But of course, the argument here is well, none of this is going to lead to socialism or a socialist revolution. Obviously not. Obviously not. What it might do is stop, not stop, of course, but slow, change the trajectory of, reduce the intensification of the process of full atomization and, and, uh, and uh, social dissolution and spiritual dissolution and literal physical dissolution that is occurring under this crisis-ridden death-spiraling neoliberalism. And then maybe in, in that context, you can work from there. It's easier to work in a room that's not filling with water. It's easier to do a crossword puzzle if the fucking Cyclone B isn't coming in through the fucking vents.
so yeah, none of this is, is prescriptive beyond that. It's like, well, what about, uh, you know, should you people be joining the military? I, I don't know. These are all decisions people have to make on themselves. But I do know that, uh, that the, the totalizing work of, of defining yourself online through having a rigid approach to reduced binary questions is, is, how it, is, is a recipe for someone who cannot engage the world around them uh, uh, positively. Cannot, is not likely to create the feedback loop that, that produces a positively charged social interaction that can actually sustain itself. But yeah, I would not, I mean, I obviously, even if I could, I would not have joined the military ever. I couldn't imagine myself doing any of that. Uh, even if I wasn't, even if I was guaranteed I wouldn't be in a theater of war. But the thing is, you can't guarantee that. And that is the big reality that underscores all of this. And it lends such, like, real um, emotion, charged feeling to the question of a military and society. Because while we're talking about this, it's killing people. While we're speaking, it's killing people. I mean... In every sense, not only is it a machinery of death, not only does it, by its nat by its very existence, rob American citizens and citizens globally of well-being and, and wealth and health and possibility to thrive. Uh, it's actually also the single largest corporate uh, climate emitter in the world. It's killing us at every level. That's bad. It makes sense that people want to make this a, a like a, the signal issue, and then there's the question of solidarity. How do you can you say that you have solidarity with the, the, the victims of empire if you're conspiring with the perpetrators of the violence of empire? To which I say that is the I mean that's the contradiction at the heart of organizing in the imperial core, but it's unresolvable, and the reason people love arguing about it is because it's unresolvable, because it will always lead to more arguing. Veterans, I think, uh, would be a very... And, and the thing about veterans is, and this is a reason that I don't think that we're going to get to anything with the Democrats and Republicans, I feel like at this point, the brand of the Democrats has been so spoiled among, I would say, veterans as a category, broadly. And certainly white veterans. And of course, that's racism is a reason for that. But a lot of it is unnecessary. A lot of it is around charged, vacant political theater that doesn't actually result to have anything to do with the parties themselves. Like, everybody can point out tediously that the, actually Democrats give more money to the military and they give more money to VA offers and they, their policies would help veterans. Yeah, sure. But that's not how it's experienced. Its experience is a cultural slugfest between performances of value. And the Democratic performance of value is, even if, like, Joe Biden and those guys, the political people, try hard to counteract it, at the cultural level, the associated elements are hostile to it. And, not, and, and that means that the thing that's going to come up, the thing that's going to catch among us, if it's going to, is going to come in the form, eventually, eventually, probably, of some sort of party formation, and it will be outside of that dynamic because that's the only way that you could breach the, the, the hull of like a localized labor and political movement uh, onto one that people are aware of in the media sphere and then one into which people are moving towards elsewhere. The generation of political momentum. You're not going to have uh, that if you have to deal with a lot of the shit about Democrats and culture stuff. And also, if you're, if you're a post-lefty who wants the Republicans to do it, it means the Republicans can't do it either. Because the Republicans are the party of racism. The Republicans are the party of hatred of minorities and fucking immigrants and hostility to women as equal citizens. That's not going anywhere either. So nobody's working class person, no matter where they are demographically, is going to be able to adhere to one of these parties 
uh, enough to get a broad swath of working class people that operate from a working class perspective because they're alienating the other half. And you need one of those halves to get with the people who aren't part of this bullshit or parts of both of them, more likely parts of both of them. And that's by something that isn't tainted with this garbage, with this shit. And you can say, but it's not fair that the Democrats aren't the part, are considered not the, to hate troops. And it is fair that the Republicans are racist. That doesn't matter. Yeah, you don't want to talk about a third way because that's, I mean, that was originally fascism. And if you talk about the military part, people's hairs are really going to get back in the heads about fascism. And then, of course, it was the, you know, neoliberal, neo-fascism of the current, uh, the current trajectory. Either way, no thank you. But uh, that only makes sense if you think that the, the two ways we have now are like a left and right. They're not. It's actually more of a second way. Like, the current way is one way. It's one big thing. Nothing is going to change. It's locked. The gears are frozen. We're tumbling off of the end of the thing. Politics is dead within this structure. So anything that comes outside of it is an alternative to that. So it's a second way, i.e. socialism. Because fascism was a third way in a real contest between capital and labor. It was it was a real Donnybrook. Those commies looked like they had they had old uh, rich uncle penny bags on the run for a minute there until fascism showed up to save capitalism's ass. That is not what we're, the situation we're in right now. We're in where politics has become a a, a, a trump low. It's it's a fucking uh, an illusion, and we're we're fixated by it while uh, the actual politics is fixed. The Chinese are tweeting about Australian war crimes. They have entered the game, folks. China has entered the mind space. They are going to try to weaponize human rights just like we do. It is going to be delightful. Oh, man. Seeing people tie themselves into contortions to try to outwoke one another in their uh, justification of bloodshed. Because, of course, all of this talk about human rights is strictly for the eggheads. It's strictly for the don't be an assholes. No one else is listening to that or cares. So that means the language will get more and more horrifyingly, grotesquely uh, uh, diversity uh, infused. Yeah, my real dream is, you know, I said it's going to come down to China versus uh, America. Well, how about a couple of officers movements high-fiving in the middle what about that to get rid of the like the top at the, the the top end corporate merger or confrontation like, how about one of those huh how likely is it not not very but the good news is if you think about it nothing is likely because none of these there's so many probabilities, and none of them uh, mean anything until they've resolved into one state or another, which means you can't look at anything until it's already happened, and that the whole thing of likely or unlikely is much less important than understanding the greater structures. It's not whether your predictions are good or not. It's about whether you feel like you are grounded in your analysis. And then you can extend it for a bit, but the further you extend, the fucking mistier it gets, because contingencies pile up upon one another, and render every subsequent moment just uh, vastly more difficult to calculate because of the amount of randomness involved. The cat is neither dead nor alive. The cat, the cat is floating through like we all are. Like I talked about how the, the election was sort of an opening of the box, and I think it was an opening of the box for one thing, but it only opened the box on that thing. 
Now we got to deal with that that's a dead cat. Okay, but there's a bunch of other cats here. There's a bunch of other boxes. None of them have been opened yet. And all we can really tell by that dead box is maybe looking which direction we're likely to see the next box. Grasping in, in, in broad strokes, not through... I mean, and of course, what, this is what I'm talking about like at the level of theory. The good news is while people talk like this, while people are operating at this level, people are operating at the level of technology. People are operating at the level of personal engagement. The movement being built as I speak. The contours of which are coming into view. What it is, I don't know. No one even knows they're part of it, and no one will until it's already happened. So if you want to say there's no hope, that nothing can be good, that doom is inevitable, well, honestly, that doesn't really change anything, because you're still going to be living a life, you're still going to have people you love, unless you're just going to kill yourself, which you're not going to do. You're going to live your life. You're going to have people in your life that you love. You're going to try to make your, their life better. The more you love the people around you, the more your, people you're going to love, the more you're going to care about them, which means the more likely you are when a situation comes where you can all help each other, you do it. And then you're doing it and you're moving towards the same goal as somebody who has the perfect outline in their head and never lost faith and never took the black pill. You're going to end up doing the same thing. Doesn't matter what got you there intellectually. That's, all, that's, that's just following after your heart pulling you in a direction. Your heart pulling you gravitationally towards other hearts. And like that is just to say, like it's fun to talk about this stuff and it should inform your life one way or the other it's stuff to talk about think people need things to talk about people need things to think about and things that help them make sense of the world are better than things that make the world more murky and make them more angry and make them more scared because they understand it less like those things have help they have benefit but they cannot be the thing that makes you act they can't be because you will just be missing the forest for the picture of the trees You know, I realize that there is something to that old, that horrible saying that people uh, that love to, who who want to avoid uh, any kind of account, any sort, they want to do politics purely for clout and have no interest in actually changing anyone. The old, the old, anyone's mind or making the world better. That is the old. It's not my job to educate you. Thing. And that is obviously incredibly cynical when used and it is used specifically so that people can get out of justifying their beliefs because one it's it's hard two it's frustrating uh i.e not fun and three it's actually impossible for some of them because they don't even know why they believe what they believe because deep down they're operating off of social signals and they haven't reasoned to that point so if they get into an argument or they get into a thing where they have to educate they might run out of knowledge. And they can't run out of knowledge publicly without undermining their position and status. They always have to bluff that they know more. That is essentially a call of a bluff. And they, if they don't have to, they won't. And, since, and they can just say that, and that lets them opt out. But I think one thing that makes people say that, that isn't just craven, and isn't purely just about clout, is the fact that uh, there is something to it if you extend it to, it's not my job to educate me, you about everything. And that's the big problem with, one of the big problems with this online thing is that everybody is operating off the premise that they have to be a fucking expert on everything. They have to be at, at comment on everything. Uh, and so when they're asked, why do you believe this? They might not really know, but also it might not matter that they don't know because it's not really their job in life. It's not what they know about. It's not what they can communicate. There is something they do know and can communicate. And if you ask them about that, They'd give you able to, they would want to answer you because they would be happy to share. But nobody, nobody is in that position. Everyone is in the position of trying to bluff each other around knowing, and that's why a lot of the questions end up, the, the, the things people are supposed to educate you about, end up just being 
like contested sides of an argument rather than any useful uh, insight uh, because uh, that's all you're really trying to do is tell somebody the right side of an argument to take not any practical application to your life so everybody shouldn't be fucking answering every question about every goddamn thing Maybe when you know something about something, say it. And of course, I know easy, like, that's hilarious for me to say. I built my fucking career on being the generalist loudmouth. And it's like, yes, fair cop. And that's, I'm one of the people who helped create a incentive structure for people who go online to talk about politics. Which was, if you just act like you know everything about everything, enough people will take you seriously, they'll pay you to talk. And then you don't have to do anything, you have to work anymore. Which is what we're all trying to do, is avoid the fucking wood chipper wood chipper that is whippling around us at every moment of our lives, or as we perceive it as such, even if it were, we're materially relatively secure. What I'm saying is that now, you know, I think is a time to, like, pick what you think you can confidently articulate, and I feel like I have found through a lot of bullshitting and a lot of, uh, a lot of public, uh, you know, thinking through... I have found like a, a a dimension of like human thought, conception, whatever, it can, I, information that I feel relatively confident about talking about. And of course, just by luck, it's the stuff that's easiest to learn about because it's really just about absorbing information and then collating it. You don't need to apply it the way that a scientist does. That's why I respect them. Uh, or apply it in any real sense because you don't have any, you don't really have like coworkers or customers in the traditional sense. So you're not bound by those relationships. Uh, it's a weird place to be. But it's left me here feeling like, okay, this is stuff I can talk about. And I really try not to talk, I'm trying to wean myself off of talking about anything. I don't feel like I have something to really add. Uh, and that's why I'm like cutting myself away from predicting things. Besides trying to sketch out like a three-dimensional model for like the, the slice of time we find ourselves in. Uh, because it, it attenuates any, like, I think some people might be better to, to predict specifically if they had more, at, more grounding in certain empirical scientific traditions than I do. So, and like questions of economics, like I like the arguments about, you know, uh, uh, MMT. And fucking uh, uh, job guarantee versus UBI. I don't know enough, and I don't find I don't think I'm going to find myself motivated enough to learn enough about that stuff to add anything that anybody else hasn't already said better than me. All I can do is like from my position of understanding, observe the argument and see which one's convincing. That's all you can ever do. Ah. <sighs> chilly. It's getting cold. And that's apparently going to be a storm this weekend. Oh boy. That's why I like to talk about history. Because I feel like I'm on nice solid ground there. No, I know, in the broad sense, what happened. <laughs> and that's why politics, politics is essentially history backwards. Politics is essentially, like, I mean, political science, I mean. You know, whatever you call political science, the made-up science of political science. It's history backwards. We're trying to turn it and see the other way. You see the other way through the telescope. And I, it's possible, but you need to have tools I don't have. So I like to do a little bit of that. And I like to use mostly history because I feel like I've, I've got a better uh, grab on that one. Because all you got to do is read. It's easy. don't have to do math. Oh, my God. Kill me. What would happen if I shaved my beard? I would probably lose subscribers. <laughs> I will say that. I'll just put it at that and leave it. I don't think it'll ever happen. Just like with the shaving of the head. I don't think it's going to happen. If it didn't happen at the height of the first quarantine, uh, before I even had my, you know, uh, my moment of enlightenment that I've been, you know, has helped me cope ever since, it's not going to happen now. Somebody, said, somebody keeps talking about Ethan Hawke in the chat. The other day they said that Ethan Hawke personally called us out and said Chapo, he hates Chapo, which I never 
found out if that's true. Nobody said it to me on Twitter. Nobody like said, CC, this happened. And now they're saying that Ethan Hawke says that he is a Marxist-Leninist? Is this happening? Are these things happening, or is there a weird guy creating like a, a para-reality in the chat and trying to get me to participate in him because he's a little sicko? Is Ethan Hawke going to be the American Gaddafi? I highly doubt it. I don't think that's going to happen. Such a weird guy to pick, Ethan Hawke. The rich man's Stephen Dorff, Ethan Hawke. I did finish Dragonland. It's great, uh, wonderful. I don't. I'm glad. I hope he doesn't keep going. I feel like he. There's at this point, it's redundant. Like anything other, anything from then would be a different project, and uh, it's probably not one that he's that interested in. I presume. Apparently, he's doing. Uh, uh, work on like the early Democratic Party, I think. If he is, I am very excited about that. Uh, I would love to see, oh God, Rick Perlstein writing about Martin Van Buren. Give me that. Who will be the Lib Pinkertons? Wasn't that Lib? Uh, isn't that the Antifa Pinkerton who domed that guy in Denver? <laughs> I know it's horrible, and I'm not happy it happened, but there's something slapstick about it. The whole setup—it's hard not to laugh. I'm sorry, just the way that he just. Burp. I mean, and the guy does seem like a kind of a douche. You know, not that sad. Like, you know, I don't get sad about way better people than him dying, but. Uh, I just don't like the whole spectacle of that shit. I just find it... I really don't... It's, it's More than anything, it just depresses me because it shows how far we are from real politics. The way it goes... Kind of funny. No, this is not a Ranger Regiment jacket. I'm stealing three types of valor with this shirt. Three types of valor are being stolen with this bomber jacket. So we've got here the United States uh, Marshal Service. Then we have Airborne here. That's right, Second Rangers. And then, so I'm stealing valor from those organizations. And I'm also stealing valor from the cast of the film Con Air. Because I do not, in fact, I did not, in fact, work on that movie, so stealing this jacket, wearing this jacket, is, in fact, valor theft. This was my Halloween costume this year. Uh, it was high concept. So, the premise is, I was not Teddy KGB. I had the Teddy KGB, I had my, my red sweat, uh, my, my red jumpsuit on, and then I had a button-down. I didn't have this shirt. I had a, I had a button-down, kind of Halloween-looking shirt. It was pretty close to the war we he, the one he wore. I was not Teddy KGB. I was John Malkovich on the set of Con Air, because Con Air came out, uh, I think, two years or a year before Rounders. So, uh, if oh yeah, I'm sorry, on the set of Rounders, not Con Air. So if hypothetically, John, if Malkovich was standing around waiting for a take, like drinking a coffee on the set of Rounders, he might well have been wearing this jacket between takes. So that was the Halloween idea. And it was good. I got the, the beard played. I, wanna, I always want to make... If I do a Halloween costumes, I want the, the, my facial shit to play. I don't like it with, like, if I don't have a mustache. If, it does, if the guy doesn't have a beard, it's like, kind of annoying if I have a beard. Or glasses, same thing. And the glasses are non-negotiable. I am blind as a bat. Another reason they probably wouldn't love me in the military. Really, really bad eyesight. I have, I have to get special lenses that take the regular thickness and reduce them. Because if I didn't do that, 
this this lens would probably be like maybe maybe a half inch thick, like a quarter inch. I really am a physical wreck. You can kind of see how I ended up being very dualistic so for, for much of my life. My body did feel kind of like a fucking prison. Like, I couldn't move it the way I wanted to. I couldn't hear. Uh, couldn't see for shit. I could get contacts, I think, but I've never looked into it. I never wanted contacts. One, I think I look better with glasses. My eyes are a little deep set. I kind of sit back there, kind of look like a serial killer. Uh, and the other is, I don't want to stick my finger in my eyeball every day. That's gross. Ooh, smoke weed I do. Somebody wants me to do Yoda for some reason. Off, off that loud I am. I am the answer, by the way, to the question posed by E1. What if Yoda was six tall, six foot tall, and smoked weed? You're looking at him right here, buddy. This is, this is if Yoda was six feet tall and smoked weed. What if Yoda was six feet tall and smoked weed? Grogu is not Yoda. Obviously, I thought we were all clear on this. Grogu is a baby of the species of Yoda. Uh, what if Yoda was six feet tall and he smoked weed? Boom. Shout out to E1 Boys. Very good, very good podcast. Very, 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 very talented. We're all, we're all very fond of them. I am not a Star Wars nerd. I, I was as much a Star Wars nerd as anyone who grew up when I did. I mean, I had Star Wars sheets. I had a Star Wars pop-up book. I had the Star Wars figures. I saw the movies a bunch of times. But it was just part of, like, a broader palette of pop culture that I also watched. Like, I remember being really excited to see the Batman movie. I'm waiting in line when I was a little kid. Uh, I liked that, too, you know? It just, it was, back then, things didn't define you that way. Because we weren't at the micro-sect level of pop culture. There was still a broad mainstream, and you were just a part of it. You didn't, unless you were a nerd, which was when nerd meant something. And, like, I was a nerd about some things. I was a nerd about the Civil War. That was my Star Wars. That was my Pokemon. That was whatever the hell you people were into. While you were, while you were partying at, uh, with your Pokédex, playing Magic the Gathering, I was studying the Blade of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, which he used to lead the 20th Maine down Little Round Top on the second day of Gettysburg. July 2nd, 1862. I was reading the Civil War books. I was looking through big Civil War map books. I had this, I literally had, you guys had Pokédex? I had a service. They would mail me like every month, a pack of essentially Civil War trading cards. They were, but they were about the size of, um, they were the size of like recipes and they came under, you got a recipe book or a recipe box and then they came, they were about the size of like a postcard or a recipe card. And they had on the front, they had a, like a battle or a, or a general or a place or a, a piece of military equipment uh, and on the back they'd have the stats. And I would do them. So that was, I, I didn't really have a pop culture thing. I've developed those, like, you know, attachments as I got older. And I uh, engaged with, like, this new pop culture where, oh, now there's a, th now nerd is, like, a category that you can, like, choose from. And, oh, what's this? It's basically absorbing all of culture because the things that make nerdy, being nerdy cool are the things that you learn are cool in co are the things that make you nerdy are the things that in college you learn are actually cool and so the culture as it comes more college becomes nerdier and everyone gets pulled towards nerd or pulled away from nerd uh, that's the Whedon Snyder divergence but I never cared enough about it because 
It was not grounded in like the child. I think because a lot of the reason this is so powerful for people, the YA people, and the and the, and the De, the Devin Farachis and the movie Bob type guys, is because this ties them deeply to that period of time when their lives were promised, when they felt fresh with with the life and enthusiasm, and they had a, you know a, a life ahead of them, and they they want to like stay connected to that. And I understand it. I think one of the reasons I've never able to like fully get on board with any of this stuff, even though of course I was I got went along, I, I watched the Marvel movies, I enjoyed them. I, it was a way. It was what people like I were talking about, so I talked about it with them. But I never gave my soul over to it because where that is in my in me is not in fucking Star Wars or fucking comic books or any of that shit. It's it's the second day of Gettysburg coming down Little Round Top, and they don't put that shit in those movies. Very rarely. I was a war I'm certainly not as much of a war nerd as the actual war nerd. Like, that guy is me on, like, every type of, like, you know, st steroid of talent. Like, far better writer than I could ever hope to be. You know, and therefore a more rigorous thinker and, and like, a much broader uh, spectrum of knowledge than I could ever hope to attain. Because uh, uh, it powered me, but, you know, I was never very powered because my talents were meager and my uh, motivation also, and maybe even less so. Uh, but yeah, I'm thinking more and more that, that the alternative history of Reconstruction might be my long-term writing project. I might do some other stuff, but I'm starting to think I might like sit down. I mean, it would start with just reading. I would think I'm going to have to really re go back and look at a lot more, like reread Phoner, start with rereading Phoner and Du Bois, and then everything I've missed, you know, since I kind of got destroyed by the internet. And then, I might do it. I might do that. It might happen. Stay, uh, watch this space. And if it does start happening, I will certainly talk it out here. Like, that will be a very useful, I think, that will be useful for my process, I think. So if I actually start doing this and start reading about it, I'll probably do a little book club as I'm going through the stuff uh, and moving through. Does that sound good? Like, whatever I'm reading at the moment, I'll probably start with Foner. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So we'll do a Foner uh, book club very shortly. I mean, maybe at the beginning, of, maybe next year we should shoot for it. Because I got stuff I got to do uh, in December. So yes, next year we'll start a Foner book club on here. Not like a whole hour, but, you know, like a little chunk at the end or something. And we'll, and we'll go through Foner. And we're all, we'll, we'll do Du Bois after that, probably. Those two. And then maybe, like, I'll just do them, like, as I read the book, I'll maybe talk about it instead of going through the whole thing. We'll see. We'll see what people want to do. If it's still even a thing. If I'm still here to do it. But uh, I, I, there's a, a couple books by, uh, at least one book by James Oakes I really want to read. Uh, and then actually there's a big, you know what else I might want to uh, actually do? I'm wondering if I should even do it before Fawner. Oh, there's this book called, uh, I haven't read it. And if people, anyone has and you have a review, please let me know. Because I think I might start with this one. The same way when me and Chris started talking about uh, the politics of uh, like uh, the early republic for a project. We, we read um, the Willens book, Rise of American Democracy. Like, it covers that era great, and then you can build from there. Uh, and I want something that you can start from, like, even below the level of Reconstruction. Uh, and that and covers the period. And there's a, there's a book called... I hope I'm remembering the title here. It's, 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 a, it's a rather cumbersome title. Yes. The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gold, Gilded Age by Richard White. I was thinking if that's good, if people have heard it, because I haven't read it, and I'd like to start maybe with something I haven't read before. Uh, we could start there just to get like the, the political uh, and, the, and the greater uh, context, and then fonder from there. So if anyone knows, we'll do that, and if not, we'll start with fonder.
I am, and I have to admit. So, all right. So I'm thinking about it. I don't know yet what the project will end up looking like. There's a maybe I could do it. God help me, I could do it like as a novel. Oh my God, Harry Turtle Dove style, which is maybe too cringe, uh, or a sort of like a little monograph like that Lincoln Lennon lives book, which just sort of sketches it out, sort of like an alternative, like historical chronicle, more scholarly. Less cringy. Maybe the whole thing is cringe no matter what. Maybe counter-narrative history is inherently cringe. I think an argument could be made. But at the same time, I'm trying to move towards the thing that I think I could fire my enthusiasms around and get me over the hump of like, presenting a, you know, a coherent view of something. No musical. Let me say this. Not going to be a musical. There will be no rapping. There will be no hippity happity rapity crappity. Well, yeah, it is wish fulfillment, but the thing is, is what I would want to do is I would want to steer away from, like, the best of all possible worlds scenario. I would, I would not, I would want to, like, self-consciously, if either way I did it, I would be, I would want to push against the headwinds of my, of my fantasy of what I would want. And I think I can do that the more grounded it is historically. That's why I want to read a bunch and reread stuff before I even start, because I don't want to just make it a, a little, uh, a thumb sucker. Because the only reason counterfactual history is useful is if it allows you to see how mechanisms play out, where fluidity exists within a system, and where it, and where like uh, energy and force could be applied, and you can do that sometimes more clearly by abstracting yourself away from the moment, which is too fired with uncertainty to really be able to uh, articulate. Whereas you could just sort of, if you study the past enough, you can sort of project out a little blurry alternative pathway. You know, like if you know enough about the conditions where things arose from, you can start building a dream. You know, if not a dream of ultimate victory, a dream of alternative, a second way. Dog is barking. Woo! Doggies, get killed walking your doggy. Is he here, Richard? Give me all you got. You can sit in my ex, my wife's ex-husband's post-dead tech, post-modernistic bullshit house, but you will not watch my television. Hoo-ah. Favorite rapper? Gotta be Young MC, in that he's the one I probably have listened to the most in my life. Because, man, I, I really burned through Stone Cold Ryman in junior high. Played that shit nonstop. I knew all the lines in every song on that tape for a while. Now though, even years later, I know all of uh, Bust a Move, of course, got that one tattooed on my brain, but also more, uh, more uh, obscure ones, like uh, Principal's Office. So yeah, definitely Young MC. Yeah, no, I'm a boomer, guys. I, I warn you going in. I don't pretend to be one of your uh, one of your comrades. I don't pretend to be from the streets. I'm not I'm not Steve Buscemi rolling in with my fucking skateboard and my rock band or music band shirt saying, How do you do, fellow kids? That's not me. I'm old as fuck. Look at my hairline. Look at this shit. It's a fucking it is a wasteland. It's the Gulf Coast right now. not a reactionary now. That's the one thing I don't think I am. I don't think I'm a reactionary. I mean, depending on what you mean by that, of course. 
People can make it mean whatever they want, apparently. And I do feel like I have a different perspective on this shit because I am not a fully digitized citizen. I have been digitized, but in my adult life. I know a time before digitization. I'm being pulled through the fucking Stargate, through the black hole. I'm being spaghettified, but I'm in the process. I didn't come out a strand of spaghetti. And that, I think, doesn't make me better. And I think that's a lot of the stupid heat and argument about all this generational politics, which is 90% bullshit anyway, boils down to this charged idea that there's, like, a judgment behind it. There's none. It's just position in time. It's position in time in relationship to means of production and the technology thereof. That's the difference. There's nothing to be judged about it. Just saying is I think that I, it allows me to see some of uh, what's happening because I can still watch like it flowing up my arm, you know? Like I can feel it moving through, like, uh, you know, blood poisoning. It's not just my whole circulatory system. But the thing about that is, is that means that I am, I am going to be limited in my ability to understand anything that's happening because I'm on the other side of this thing. I'm not fully within it, which means that I don't really know what's going on. I can't. All I can do is offer like a uh, orthogonal commentary on it. The thing itself is going to have people within it, and the people within it are going to have responsibilities to themselves, to their families and loved ones, to try to, you know, take destiny's wheel. And they are going to have knowledge that I don't have, because they are going to be acculturated to these ways in a way that I never will be. And so, saddle up, partners. I wish you well. I just am not going to act like I can say you're going to save anybody. That there's anything determined by your being younger, by being immersed in this techno world, uh, alienated even further from life than people before you, uh, that that's going to make you inherently the revolutionary cadre who saved the world? I'm afraid not. Nothing destined about it. It's in our hands. We're going to have to reach across all these arbitrary boundaries and come together for any hope of an alternative to full liquid social liquefaction. I'm revisionist. Of course I'm a revisionist. That's such a stupid fucking accusation. Revisionism had... It's like all these mid-century terms people are cosplaying, like tanky. Who's tanks? There's no fucking tanks. There's nobody you could even plausibly say are the tanks. I'm sorry. China doesn't count. Even in your heart, you know. It's not the same thing as the Soviet Union. It just isn't. Because it's not... Because the, the Chinese communist state, say whatever you want about it, is not missionary the way that the Soviet was. There was not an internationalism to it. You couldn't join the club. They don't want you as a member. They want to make a deal with you. And that's a different relationship to it than the relationship between Western communists and the Soviet Union. So those were their tanks in their heart in a way that doesn't exist anymore. So tanky is meaningless. And like it, it obscures the thing because it puts weight and power morally behind questions that mean nothing. Like whether you were going to stand for the purges in a Western communist party, that had meaning. You were fighting for power. You were fighting against other people who were in the broad left trying to trying to move towards uh, like a confrontation with capital during the, the, uh, co the collapse of capitalism. You were, fighting, you were fighting a battle and it had stakes. And so of course it had moral weight. There's no moral weight to these questions because there's no, these tanks don't belong to anybody. Revisionist is the same thing. Revisionist was a meaningful slur because you were revising away from a, a understood practice that undergirded a global movement. There is none. You're not revising away from anything. You're revising away from my boutique understanding of Marxism that nobody else agrees with except your, your fellow clique members. All you can do is threaten to kick me out of a clique. I've revised. Yes, I've revised from you. But nobody else but your fellow travelers think that that's the case. Not like rev uh, revising away from a, a communist government or a, a, a communist history of state actions like, oh, this was a revisionism, you can look back from a position of authority. There is, just like with the tanks, the tanks, there's no real tanks. The revisionism, there's no real book. Like, re there's no real reified idea that you can deviate or revise from. 
And so in both cases, the whole vocabulary only serves to obfuscate reality and, and mystify the conditions of every argument you're trying to have. And this is what I mean when I say that this, is, this place is poison if you try to... Because, like, why are you talking about this stuff? Why do you care about questions that would even read you to call someone a tanky or a revisionist? It's because you're trying to do politics. And if that's what politics are, you swung and missed. Again, if you're doing something else, that's one thing. But if this is what you're doing, it's not enough. Me included. And I'm saying, time out for COVID, but seriously. All right, I'm going to go soon. It's getting chilly out here. Was I being trolled? About the guy, the Ethan Hawke guy, was he trolling me? All right. Well, like I said, sure, I'm revisionist, but who are you going to call? Who are you going to call? Marx Busters? There's no one there. There's no one whose authority you can call on that will be universally agreed upon by any subsection that you could broadly call the left. So there's no, um, there's no enforcing orthodoxy intellectually, just like there's no uh, uh, enforcing orthodoxy politically through the barrel of the Soviet, uh, the Red Army's guns in the Warsaw Pact. And that is the, that is the condition, that is the, the condition of Western politics where the drivetrain has been broken because there is no working class movement undergirding any of this, just like there's no Soviet government undergirding a, uh, a, a Marxist-Leninist praxis of state power wielding, of a condition of an intensity deep enough to impact things. Or in the West, trade unions and labor movements and labor parties. I should wear a kimono. I would like to wear a kimono one of these days. When I get back in, when it gets too cold to come out here, I might get a, I might, I might get a kimono. I've been looking for a, a robe. I haven't been able to find one. But yeah, I'm a revisionist. Call the KGB. They don't care. Call the KGB. I'll just have sex with them. 